I'm short, but I feel like I have to work harder than other kids because my body works differently. It has also taught me that I'm strong and I can do anything I put my mind to. Now that I'm older, I hope that other kids see that their shots are helpful and that they can grow stronger like I have. Hypophosphatasia, also known as HPP, is a rare genetic condition that affects bones, breathing, and mobility. The exact prevalence of HPP is unknown, but in its severe form, it's expected to affect 1 in 100,000 babies. The disorder affects mineralization, the process by which calcium and phosphorus are deposited in developing bones and teeth. Instead of strong and rigid teeth and bones, an HPP patient's bones are soft and prone to fracture or deformity. Oftentimes, HPP can be detected before birth. This was the case for a special girl named Evie, whose parents did not know what her prognosis might be. That is, until shortly after Evie's birth, when they were offered a life-changing chance to participate in a clinical trial for the first prescription treatment for HPP. When Evie was eight years old, she met for the first time some of the researchers from Charles River and Alexion who worked on the treatment for her ultra-rare disease. Now age 13, Evie and her mother, Lindsay, join us for today's episode of Vital Science. We'll discuss Evie's treatment journey, the important role of community for rare disease patients, and how Evie's participation in the Strensic trial has changed not only her and her family's lives, but the lives of many with HPP. It's not often that we have the honor of speaking with a patient. So Lindsay and Evie, I want to thank you both for being here and welcome to Vital Science. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Lindsay, I'm going to dive right in here and, and um, ask you a, a couple of questions. It, you know, it, it's been a while since I've seen both of you and I'm really excited today to hear more about um, your lives and what's been happening. Most importantly, how has Evie's diagnosis shaped your family and your role as a patient advocate? Yeah, Evie's diagnosis has shaped most aspects of our life um, since she was diagnosed. Our day-to-day looks different. Um, Our goals for our kids are different. How we view their futures are different. Um, We weren't supposed to have very much time with her, so we get to have like a little bit higher level of gratitude, I think, for some of the little things. Um, We didn't know if she would walk and she's walking and running and playing sports and doing all the things. So um, it's shaped us a lot. And then as a patient advocate, I think I probably have a keener eye for people with disabilities. Um, It's important to me that they get their questions answered, that they know how to advocate for their kids, for their family members, um, and that it's important to fight for the care that they need. So it's hard work and it's worth it. And that's about it. There is a lot of conversation that happens on the HPP pages um, where people will say, my child's struggling with this, or has anyone had craniosynostosis surgery? Have you dealt with Chiari malformation? And I do feel like we have a pretty strong voice there because Evie's done so well. Um, The surgeries that she's had have been really successful. Um, Like right now, she's in physical therapy, not as a surgical remedy, but because I want her to be able to mechanically walk in the way that's going to benefit her body the most. So I found a physical therapist who could work with her on core strength and leg movement and what stretches do we need to do to 
keep you from being stiff when you wake up in the morning. Um, so as she gets older, I think it's going to be a lot of how can we help you live the best you can uh, in the body that you have. So Evie, it seems like yesterday when we first met you, I believe you were eight at the time, and I can't believe you're a teenager now, 13 years old. Um, what grade are you in now? I'm in seventh grade. Okay. And do you have a favorite subject in your schoolwork? I like math. Great. Um, math will take you anywhere, I think. And what about swimming? Uh, is that something you're still doing in, in our Early days, we we um, shared some time with you in the pool. Is that still part of your life? Uh, I don't do swim team anymore, but I just swim for fun. Perfect. I love it. So we don't need to be on the Olympic training path here. We can just enjoy the pool. Have you thought about what you want to be when you're older and what things interest you or what your future job could even be? I want to be a travel nurse. Because I love traveling and I love helping others. So it combines both of that. That's amazing. Good for you. Lots of school, but the math will come in handy for that. So Lindsay, uh, Evie's relationship with Charles River began when she was quite young. And um, I'm just wondering if you could take us back to that time and walk us through your journey at that time. So we found out Evie had a bone disorder when I was pregnant. We didn't know what it was. Um, they found it really early on. So we knew that it was going to be severe. Um, they told us the earlier they find it, the more severe it is. And they saw it on her very first ultrasound. Evie was misdiagnosed with OI, which is osteogenesis imperfecta. And she was diagnosed with type two, which is a lethal form. But she was not expected to survive long after birth if she made it through delivery. So um, we sort of prepared for that for months. We also prayed that she would make it and do really well, and she did. So she was born. Uh, she made it through delivery, and after a few days in the hospital, they sent us home. Um, the, it was clear that she had something uh, her limbs were short and a little bit bowed. She had some labored breathing, but um, they didn't have any other reasons not to send us home. So they sent us home. A few weeks later, she started having seizures. Um, what that looked like when she was little was she would stop breathing. Um, we would have to um, try to get her to come back too. And um, when we took her in to our children's hospital, they diagnosed her with hypophosphatasia. So we got really lucky. We ended up with a doctor who had heard of HPP at a rare disease conference. He noticed that her alkaline phosphatase was undetectable um, in her lab draws and um, she was diagnosed with hypophosphatasia. So um, at that same hospital stay, they told us that there was a clinical trial that she might be eligible for. It wasn't for sure. Um, and then she started that trial when she was three months old. So our first few years, she had lots of surgeries. I think we're at 13 total. She had several wow. several on her skull. Um, her skull fused a little too early, um, which is called craniosynostosis. She had Chiari malformation, which means your brainstem is slipping down into your spinal cord. Um, she had surgeries on her Achilles tendons so that she could move her feet. Um, she has a rod in her right femur as that bone was starting to split um, through the middle. So those years are pretty um, mm. jam-packed with 
all kinds of things. She's been pretty healthy these past few years, which has been which has been really great. Happy to hear that. Yeah. That sounds like a really challenging time for you to navigate. What was that like? Did you find there to be a clear path to follow or did you face a lot of surprises along the way? Yeah, I actually think most of it surprised us. Um, mm. You know, we had a diagnosis and it changed. Um, when we found out she had infantile hypophosphatasia with seizures, we also found out that um, all of the cases of kids with HPP and seizures had died um, by the time they were 18 months. And so we were in a place where we had already had an incorrect diagnosis. We didn't really know what to think other than to take things day by day. Um, most of her early surgeries were emergent. They were things that needed to be done. They weren't really optional. Um, if we wouldn't have fixed her skull, her brain pressure would have been too high. If we hadn't rotted her femur, it probably would have broken um, on its own. And so uh, we kind of just lived those first several years day by day and doing the best we could with what we had. I mean, we didn't realize she was having seizures at first. Um, when she was little, her arms would get stiff, she would stop breathing, or she would stop breathing completely. Um, she would have seizures if she got too hot and then too cold. So if we took her out of the bathtub and it was too cold in the bathroom, she would have a seizure. If we were outside and it was cold and brought her in and she got too hot, she'd have a seizure. Um, the things that were really hard when she were, was little was that um, she couldn't tell us if she was in pain. So the first time she had craniosynostosis surgery, she was 10 months old while her soft spot was starting to bulge. So we took her in thinking something was wrong. We didn't realize it was brain pressure because her skull was fusing. Um, so I feel like those first few years were a lot of trying to figure out, is she in pain? Is she, um, is she hurting? Is she upset? You know, kind of what we needed to do and were we seeing the right specialists and, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, you know, when you're misdiagnosed with OI, what you're trained to do is how do you change a diaper without breaking their bones? How do you, how do you put a shirt on over their head if they don't have um, the neck strength to do that safely? Um, and so I think a lot of what we were doing when she was little was just praying that we would have the wisdom to know how to take care of her well, because there was so much unknown um, there was so much unknown there that we really didn't know what to do. Her orthopedic surgeon would always say, you know, we're just kind of writing the book on this, so let us know. And then there would be times when we would take her into the emergency room for seizures, and um, it was seizures that no one in the ER, a type of seizure no one had seen before, you know. And so um, there was one time when they called our neurologist and they were asking her questions, you know, Evie's here we don't know what to do. And she said, well, you need to talk to her mom, <laughs> ask her mom what's going on. And it was really wonderful for someone to say like, this person is becoming an expert in this disease. And, you know, her opinion and her perspective on this has value. So that was, that was kind of a big deal for me to know um, the things that we were seeing were going to sort of shape the future of what HPP looked like and how patients were treated. Love it. It sounds like you have become a real resource for the HPP community and Evie. She has been a guiding light in so many ways. 
At less than 90 days old, she became one of the first patients to receive Strenzik, the first and only prescription medicine available for people with perinatal or infantile and juvenile onset HPP. It is truly amazing how far she has come since that time. But how did you feel when she first began the journey? Yeah, it was scary. I mean, we didn't know anyone who had been on an experimental drug trial. Um, when you hear experimental drug, it's not it's not necessarily your first hope, you know, your first option. But we knew that if we didn't try it, she could become one of the other kids with HPP and seizures that had passed away. So we were really hopeful and grateful that there was a drug available that she could try. Um, and we decided we'd do it to help her live and then have the best life she could. Um, Evie, how has your diagnosis shaped who you are today? Uh, I'm short, but I feel like I have to work harder than other kids because my body works differently. It has also taught me that I'm strong and I can do anything I put my mind to. Um, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis, working harder than other kids? And what is your day-to-day life like? Oh, my feet hurt sometimes, and whenever I sit down, my legs get stiff, and it's hard to get back up and, like, stretched out, and so I have to do PT so that I don't hurt all the time. Wow. That's quite a commitment. Um, I, I think of you as such a brave person, um, you know, being one of the first patients to receive this treatment. You really set the path forward for so many other little kids. How does that feel to you? I was a baby, so I didn't really know. (laughs) Good point. Now that I'm older, I hope that other kids see that their shots are helpful and that they can grow stronger like I asked. That's amazing. I'm sure you're helping all those parents of those little kids to feel better about it as well. So what is it like living with this disease? You told us about some of the pain you feel on a day-to-day basis. Are there other things about the disease you can share with us? It can be frustrating when I can't keep up with my friends and I don't get to play volleyball like my sister, which is kind of disappointing. But sometimes I I can't do stuff that my friends can do, which is also disappointing. But I can also do things like hunting and other sports. So I have a hunting bow and I tried hunting this uh, first fall and so it went pretty well and I just love being out in nature even though I didn't get anything. In addition to stunted growth, HPP patients like Evie often face mobility limitations. These might include keeping pace with friends, standing comfortably for long periods, or standing from the sitting position. For Evie, her short stature made volleyball a bit of a challenge, but she really found her stride in archery. Given her dedication to physical therapy, Evie has developed significant upper body strength, which allowed her to handily manage her first bow, a gift for her 10th birthday. She outgrew that bow within a year and has gone on to master both target bows and hunting bows in archery competitions with her peers. Let's hear more from Lindsay on how Evie's treatment journey led to where she is today. So, um, Lindsay, how 
as Evie progressed since receiving her first dose of Strenzik? Was the was the progress immediate? Has it been slow over time? What does that look like? Yeah, she started Strenzik when she was three months old. Um, so we really don't know what life would be like without it for her. Um, our first goal was just to get her off of oxygen. So she started the treatment and um, within a month, she was on supplemental oxygen because we just couldn't keep her saturations high enough. Um, that took about two years. Um, it just took time for her ribs to strengthen, to support her lungs. Um, and then in the meantime, we were watching her bones uh, get stronger and harder. She had x-rays all the time um, to make sure that Strenzik was going in the places it should and not in the places it shouldn't. And um, it was pretty fantastic to watch her bones go from mostly cartilage to bone and get long and straight. And uh, it was great. And how often is the treatment required now? Uh, I used to get three times a week, but now I get six days a week. And how are those shots administered? Yeah, so, well, my dad was at first giving them to me in my arms and legs, and then I tried it once when I was nine or ten, and I could do it in my legs, and then I tried it one time in my arm, and that was really successful. (laughs) As many rare disease families will tell you, it can be hard to find resources in your search for treatment. Prior to the advent of the internet and social media, this search was next to impossible. But today, more and more connections are being made between rare disease families. Lindsay shared with us that in her online research, she was able to connect with the mother of Strensic patient number one, who called her all the way from Ireland to share her experience with the treatment. Since then, Lindsay and other HPP families have shared their knowledge through online forums and advocacy organizations like Softbones. Softbones, a Charles River partner, raises awareness about HPP by advocating for research, funding grants, and connecting patients with each other and members of the medical community to advance understanding of the disease. A large part of their mission, as seen on their website, is educating the public about early warning signs of HPP. Let's hear from Lindsay on why this is so critical. You shared details about Evie's diagnosis, but despite all of that awareness and effort, is early diagnosis an issue with HPP or is that pretty much gone away now? I think it used to be when Evie was diagnosed. Um, we heard from so many people how lucky we were that she was diagnosed accurately um, because back then a lot of people were misdiagnosed with OI or People with less severe forms, um, it takes a really long time to get diagnosed. It can be um, misdiagnosed as lots of things or even just missed altogether. So it was a really big deal, especially for us, because um, according to our doctor, her bones probably would have deteriorated without the alkaline phosphatase that they needed to get stronger. So having that was was huge for us. Wow. Um, one of our previous episodes of Vital Science, we touched on access to treatment and and um, somehow sometimes the high cost of that, you know, can really um, be a deterrent for patients. Do you have a point of view on on that and how we can make therapies accessible to patients? Yeah, I really think that patients need rare disease advocates who can walk them through the steps of diagnosis and treatment options. Um, I wasn't working when Evie was little and her 
healthcare was pretty much a full-time job. Uh, we had a two-year-old, uh, her older sister and her, and I would make phone calls to insurance companies, write appeal letters, schedule doctor's appointments, contact specialists. It really took most of my time. Um, and there was a like a period of time when she was in the hospital for a month and we ended up just actually moving into a hotel that was connected to the hospital. My husband worked there, so he would go to work and then I would go be with Evie all day. He would go spend the night in her room. I would spend the night in her room. Um, so I think it's just really important that um, companies who are making the cost of these drugs, who are um, helping patients get access, realize the impact that it has just outside of the shock of a rare disease diagnosis. A common theme of discussion on vital science is the positive impacts of collaboration in the drug development process. Our conversation with Lindsay and Evie amplified a voice in this collaboration that we have not heard much on the show, and that's the voice of patients and their families. While it is now common for clinics focused on oncology and diabetes to have patient coordinators, when it comes to infantile and juvenile rare disease, this role often falls to the patient's parents. So just as pharmaceutical organizations consult medical staff to understand patients' clinical challenges, so too should they seek the input of rare disease patients and their families as they invest in this area of vital research. For Lindsay, a seat at this table was found through Softbones, which has served as a critical link between patients and drug developers. Pharmaceutical companies now attend Softbones national patient meetings where they are able to ask real HPP patients and their families about their experience with treatment. If six days a week feels like too many doses, where they store their medicine, if injections hurt more in their arms or their legs. These important insights are taken back to the scientists in the labs to help further improve treatment. Let's hear from Lindsay on how Evie and other HBP patients have benefited from Strensic. When, when you think about Strensic and the fact that it has worked so well, you know, that it really does what it sets out to do and uh, is so effective, how do you think that the success of that drug development translates to other children diagnosed with either HPP or even other diseases around the world? Yeah, Strenzik has probably saved Evie's life. Um, it was a huge deal with early diagnosis. It took a couple months for her to get approved to be on the clinical trial. Um, but the fact that she could receive the drug before her bones got worse and that she could, um, you know, that she could impair her lung function, that her ribs could grow. Um, it was a game changer for us. Um, I know there's kids in other countries that don't have access to Strenzik because of government or insurance issues. And it's a big deal. It's a really big deal that especially while kids are young and they're growing, they have access to the things that they need. And I think part of the progress that we're seeing that I hope also leads to greater access is the collaboration that companies, organizations academic institutions, industry, as well as companies like ourselves, contract research organizations, are collaborating more and more, starting earlier on the therapies and focusing on those tough-to-diagnose conditions. In your opinion, why are these collaborations important, or do you see any benefit personally from any of that work? Yeah, one of the big things that I've seen since the beginning was um, when she started on the clinical trial, she was patient 10-1. You know, every paper we would fill out had her listed as patient 10-1. Um, and we didn't, we didn't know anyone in the pharmaceutical industry, in 
um, outside of our close network of doctors that was treating her. And now I feel like we see people from Alexion and they know her name. We see people from Charles River and they know her name. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the collaboration has been huge. I think it's turned her from a number into a person. Um, and I think that that is what really moves people to want to work hard to find drugs that save people's lives. Yeah, that's, that's a really true, very true. And, and I think you know that all the people that work at Charles River know Evie's name and, and know her story and um, you're very motivational to all of us, Evie. Um, just thinking more along the lines of that collaboration, I mean, it's our hope that it helps to make drug development faster, to really expedite it. Um, I don't know if, if you've seen that or felt that, um, but um, it, it is our, our, our hope that that's what comes of, um, you know, the collaboration. Yeah, I think that really early on what we saw was um, there was a doctor who had years of experience researching alkaline phosphatase. There was another doctor who had years of research on APP or HPP um, and then a small drug company that was willing to try to make a drug trial. And even just seeing those three pieces come together, we actually have gotten to meet all of those people. And it was really huge to see like someone cared enough to research this and put their research together with someone else to make a drug that worked. Um, and seeing that on a larger scale, I think now with companies like Charles River has been really encouraging because um, they, you will get to make drugs for diseases um, and people need, people need access. Softbones organization has worked so hard to make information available for patients, families, doctors, industry, companies. Um, a lot of the connections that we have have been through the Softbones organization. When new patients come in whose babies are diagnosed, a lot of times I'm tagged in a post to connect someone or send a message um, that that mom might need help. Um, they do fundraisers, they award grants, they're in contact with researchers. So it's been a huge deal that they're working hard. Um, and I think that companies are listening. Um, I think that companies like Charles River are listening. I think that you guys are helping us get out information about HPP. And the more people that know about it, the more support that we can get, um, like the better Evie's life will be and other people who have HPP. Yeah, what a wonderful organization. Thank you for, for sharing all of that information. So Evie, um, you seem to be doing really well. Um, we're all very proud and happy for you here. Um, seventh grade, what's next for you, like on, on your journey, whether it's things you like to do or what, what you see for yourself? Uh, next year, I'll be in eighth grade and then I'll be in high school. Yeah, that'll be a, a, a big experience. When you think back to, you know, you're almost... I mean, you are famous to me anyway. Um, what do you what do you think about your legacy? Like what what do you think people will say about you or what do you want to be known for? I want people to know they can do hard things and get through their struggles. Yeah. Thank you for that. And is there anything that that you want listeners to know about you? We have a, a big audience and um you know, love to hear anything about yourself that you want to share. I want to help others overcome their fears of shots. I know that it is worth it. Yeah, especially as a visiting nurse, I'm sure you, you'll 
make a lot of headway there. Um, Lindsay, is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I would just tell people who've maybe been diagnosed with a rare disease or on that journey, um, it's hard and it's also been so worth it. Um, I've got to watch Evie succeed in things we never thought she'd get to do. I get to watch her um, enjoy time with her friends. Um, and yeah, I'd do it all again if I had to. And um, yeah, I'm just so thankful that we get to have her. We are too. Thank you both so much. It was wonderful having you on the podcast, seeing you again and and hearing about what you've been up to, Evie. Um, so thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. You can learn more about Evie's incredible journey at seariver.com forward slash every step. For more information about hypophosphatasia, be sure to visit the Softbones website at softbones.org. Looking ahead to our next episode of Vital Science in April, we'll talk with founder and CEO of the N. Lorem Foundation, Stanley Crook, about his organization's mission to deliver ultra-rare disease treatment one patient at a time. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>